Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about colorectal cancer with Dr. Michael Caccini. Dr. Caccini is an assistant professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Mike, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about colorectal cancer, uh, a little bit about the epidemiology, who gets it, how common is it, uh, how lethal is it, and then we'll get into some of the more recent uh, updates uh, with regards to screening of colorectal cancer. So I am a gastrointestinal medical oncologist, and I see a variety of GI cancers. Um, colorectal cancer is where I focus the majority of my research and uh, clinical research efforts. Um, it's uh, quite common. There's about 150,000 cases diagnosed annually in the United States and more than 50,000 annual deaths deaths from the disease. And I do think it needs to be stated that there's also a rise in incidence in adults less than the age of 50, although it is, like many cancers, predominantly um, a cancer of, of older individuals. Um, for some unclear reason, the incidence is actually rising in adults less than the age of 50, so younger adults, um, while it is going down overall due to effective screening um, for um, uh, by colonoscopy for adults uh, over the age of 50. And um, who gets it? So the majority of ca colorectal cancer is sporadic and not familial. Um, so, but patients with a personal history, a family history of colorectal cancer are at an increased risk uh, for developing the disease. Um, personal history for large polyps, et cetera, certain polyps with certain characteristics increase the risk for colorectal cancer. Um, but again, mostly sporadic, not familial. There are conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, prior radiation, uh, and then in rare circumstances, inherited syndromes such as Lynch syndrome and uh, something we call FAP, familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome and other poly polyp syndromes. So when thinking about the fact that the majority of these are sporadic, are there any any risk factors that people who don't have a family history should really be cognizant of? So I'm thinking here about things like, um, you know, people often ask about smoking or alcohol or, um, you know, smoked meats or um, other things that might increase their risk. So there isn't this clear association with some carcinogen, some cancer or predisposing factor like there is with lung cancer and, and smoking, for example. Uh, there, the, and, and I'd say that the data is a bit mixed on uh, how important certain risk factors are. Certainly things like obesity, diabetes, and red or processed meats, um, increased red and processed meats, they may affect the, the rate to some degree, but the data, again, isn't always been consistent. Um, the, the, the smoked meats um, issue is, is more thought to be related to gastric cancer, where, where certainly it seems to play a, a, a bit more of a role. Race pl also plays a role. Um, African-Americans have the highest colorectal cancer rates in the United States, and mortality is also higher compared to other ethnic groups. 
So do we know why we see some of these epidemiologic trends? Why is it that more African-Americans get colorectal cancer? Why is it that we're now seeing more colorectal cancer occurring in adults younger than the age of 50? What are the factors in these particular populations that's increasing their risk? The short answer would be we don't know, and we're, we're, there's a tremendous, uh, tr- tremendous efforts in trying to understand some of the um, some of the risk factor, uh, some of the uh, reasons for the increased risk in the groups that you just articulated. Um, Again, interesting to get back to the younger age group. It's it's not just that the incidence has been static in that group; it's increasing, and and so we do think that it has some lifestyle, um, perhaps diet um, factor that that is playing a role here. But we really don't know. And there's a tremendous area of um, it's, a, it's a tremendous effort to try and understand why these these incidences are increasing in the young adults, but we don't know. And so, as we see more. Um, incidents in in younger people. One of the questions that that might come up is, you know, historically, and I know that the screening guidelines have recently changed to include younger uh, people in terms of routine screening for asymptomatic people. But when we think about the fact that over the last several several years, we're starting to see more colon cancer in younger people. How is it that they present? Um, because they wouldn't have presented on a routine asymptomatic colonoscopy, presumably, because historically the guidelines had recommended starting colorectal screening at the age of 50. So how are we picking up these cancers in younger people? Unfortunately, it's it's the last thing on in many um, caregivers' minds, uh, uh, medical professionals' minds, that that somebody's symptoms would be related to colon cancer if they are um, a younger adult. Um, but the the majority of patients, about three quarters of patients, will have some nonspecific change in their bowel habits. Only about half will. I shouldn't say only, about half will have bleeding. There's a palpable rectal mass um, in about a quarter of patients. Um, iron deficiency anemia isn't as actually as sensitive as, as you might think. It's only, it's, it's fewer than 20% of patients, that, especially in the young adults, that would present with iron deficiency anemia. So unfortunately, I have numerous patients in my practice that um, had some lower GI bleeding that was attributed to hemorrhoids and in, in um, Incidence-wise, that's going to be the case most of the time, but um, we shouldn't blow these symptoms off, and individuals should also listen to their bodies. And if something's not right, uh, changing bowel habits, bleeding, they should take those very seriously, even if they're younger. Is it the case that as we've seen this increasing incidence in younger people, because they are presenting with symptoms, presumably, because screening was not heretofore recommended for people who were younger than age 50, um, is it the case that these younger people that we were seeing colorectal cancers in were actually presenting with a higher stage? And, and what implication does that have for prognosis? Yeah, that's uh, that's completely correct. Unfortunately, when when you have a disease that is presenting because symptoms develop instead of asymptomatic screening, generally the the stage is higher. So these younger adults um, generally are diagnosed at a more advanced stage, um, and sometimes have even more aggressive biology. Um, overall, so the, again, the stage is going to be higher. The, the younger adult population tends to do better than the older adult population for when you're matching them by stage because they can probably withstand treatment, et cetera, better. But they are diagnosed at a more advanced stage than um, uh, than the, the um, patients that are diagnosed by asymptomatic screening. 
And so now um, the American Cancer Society has come out and said uh, that they recommend starting screening at the age of 45. Can you tell us more about, about their recommendations? Absolutely. So um, actually the um, American College of Gastroenterology uh, first, well, initially recommended dropping the screening age to 45 for adults at average risk. Um, but but the most wild, uh, widely followed guidelines are actually the U.S. Preventative Task Force guidelines, which the majority of primary care physicians follow. And they did change their recommendation about a year or two ago to, to propose a grade B recommendation for adults over the age of 45, but they still kept the grade A, their best recommendation for adults over the age of 50. But just yesterday, uh, this was updated. And, and now for all adults, they've listed a strong recommendation for adults over the age of 45. So I think now going forward, that's really going to be the age we we start screening almost all asymptomatic adults. You know, the, the power of, uh, you know, I'm a medical oncologist, I don't do colonoscopies, but col- colonoscopies um, uh, um, are a very powerful uh, screening procedure, not only because they can diagnose a cancer that's there, and then we can deal with that with surgery or chemo as necessary, but they also can remove pre-malignant conditions. So they're, they're helping prevent, prevent the development of, of colorectal cancer even down the road. Yeah. And, and, you know, there, there are so many um, screening tests now that, that are recommended uh, or that at least individuals could consider. So colonoscopy is often thought of as the gold standard, but some of these other tests seem to be really quite easy. Tell us a little bit about the different um, tests and, and the advantages and disadvantages of each. What do you recommend for patients who come to you and say, okay, I, I heard about the updated guidelines. I'm now 45. What tests should I have? I can comment a little bit there. It's not exactly my area. Unfortunately, the majority of patients I see have already um, uh, been diagnosed with cancer. But absolutely, colonoscopy is still the gold standard. So that would be my kind of blanket recommendation for those that aren't ready to do that but are interested in doing some screening. There are... um, uh, there are uh, tests for fecal occult blood, so for small amounts of undetectable blood by eye um, on a test. You know, that's an imperfect way to assess whether or not there's a cancerous or precancerous condition. Again, the colonoscopy offers the power to remove precancerous lesions, which probably are not doing much um, at that point in time, So, and, and may be missed by a, a, a test where we're trying to detect small amounts of blood in the stool. There are also tests that actually try and detect DNA in in, in the stool, and um, uh, that may be a more sensitive way, but also we're not removing anything pre-malignant with that. Um, we have yet to develop a blood-based test that's that's diagnosing um, cancer at an, um, before it develops or at an early stage. So um, there are companies that are working on that, but we have a, way, a ways to go. Um, but most of these patients are seen by my colleagues in gastroenterology for their screening um, discussions, and um, um, and uh, they're they're probably more equipped to give some more eloquent answers on that than I am. Yeah. Well, Mike, the the other question, and, and this might be a tough question as well, is why the magic number of 45? I mean, if we're seeing patients with younger colon cancers, why is it 45? Why not 40 or 42 or 38? Like, how do people come up with these um, numbers as to at what age people should start screening? 
That's a great question. And somebody asked that same question. One of my colleagues asked that same question to me just last night, you know, why not 40 instead of 45? And I kind of, I, I kind of feel that same sentiment as well. I, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, I think that this is a first step and we may be recommending 40 in a few years, but we'll have to see um, how the data and the number needed to treat the number number of colonoscopies done um, to to really prevent one colorectal cancer holds up over time at these younger age groups. Um, there's there's also um, as you know there's I think different uh, opinions on on the age of of mammography as well. Um, but again, getting back to the 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 time it takes for a colorectal cancer to develop in general somewhere on the or, the order of a decade um you know i think by lowering the age to 40 we're really capturing that group uh if if we were to lower the age to 40 we're really capturing that group in the 45 to 50 range um versus right now with a screening age of 45 we're probably you know we're capturing we're helping prevent uh, a higher incidence in that 50 to 45 range but as we started out the discussion, really less than 50 is still when we're seeing an increase in incidence of colon cancer. So I think this is a moving target and we will benefit over time of probably lowering the, um, uh, lowering the, the age. And I, I certainly, unfortunately, have patients in my practice be below the age of even 40 and 30 sometimes. Yeah, well, you know, certainly it's going to be a moving target that we'll, we'll follow. But for right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the treatment of colorectal cancer with my guest, Dr. Michael Caccini. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Michael Caccini. We're talking about the treatment of colorectal cancer. And Mike, right before the break, we were talking about the new updated screening guidelines, um, which now are recommending screening for colorectal cancer going back to the age of 45. Um, one last question with regards to screening. Before the break, you had mentioned that there are certain racial groups. So, for example, African-Americans um, tend to be diagnosed at a higher frequency, tend to have a worse prognosis than their Caucasian counterparts. So are the screening guidelines any different for African-Americans versus Caucasian patients? There were slightly different recommendations. Um, uh, I, again, I don't think making grade A, so not the top recommendations by by some of the um, um, by some of the agencies, but just as of yesterday, the U.S. Preventive Task Force has just changed it to 45 and above for all adults. And, and uh, so um, I think there were some high-risk groups, like uh, including African-Americans that were recommended 45 and above previously, but now it's just everybody 45. 
Yeah, one wonders whether they will, as as we were talking about before the break and uh, kind of edging uh, even earlier, whether they would make um, make that now a nuance uh, for higher risk groups. But I want to switch gears now and talk a little bit about what happens to patients after they have been diagnosed with colorectal cancer. So somebody goes and they get their colonoscopy and you know, we talked about colonoscopy being a great modality that can actually find pre-malignant lesions and remove them. But let's suppose on colonoscopy, a patient is found to actually have an invasive cancer. Tell us a little bit more about how the treatment really works in terms of managing patients with, with colorectal cancer. Absolutely. So it's a very multidisciplinary effort, meaning there's numerous care providers that are involved in, in, in navigating somebody through a diagnosis of colorectal cancer. There's myself as a medical oncologist. There's our surgical colleagues. There's our pathologists, our radiologists, our radiation oncologists, um, our nutritionists, our social workers, everybody really involved here. So the, the first step to really know how we're going to treat somebody's cancer is the stage. So that's that's not unique to colorectal cancer. It's very common in, in cancers. The stage will help dictate what the what the care is going to be. So stage one, two, three, and four is, is how we stage the cancer. And I could probably spend hours talking about all of this, but but stage one is basically a small cancer that's that's barely invaded into the wall of the colon. So if we think of the colon as a tube, it's barely and it starts on the inner part of that tube, it's barely invaded through the wall. Um, and it has not gone to any lymph nodes. A tumor like that is just excised by surgery. They may never even see me as a medical oncologist because surgery is curative in the majority of cases. A stage two cancer has gone a little bit further into that wall, but hasn't spread to any lymph nodes. Those patients will see a medical oncologist and, and after surgery, and um, it will be discussed whether or not they get chemotherapy after surgery to increase their cure rate and eradicate small amounts of possible um, residual disease based on risk factors. And a stage three cancer means it's gone to the lymph nodes. So it's a bit, it's behaving a bit more aggressively. So a patient with a invasive mass, colonoscopy is done, a surgery is done, lymph nodes are removed at the time of surgery in addition to the tumor, and, and they, there's cancer in the lymph nodes. So that's a stage three cancer. All of those patients are going to see a medical oncologist and almost universally, um, as long as they're, they're healthy afterwards, will get chemotherapy to hopefully increase their cure rates. Where stage four disease, like many other cancers, means it's spread more distantly. So a cancer that started in the colon spread to the liver, the lung, the lining of the abdomen, which we call the peritoneum. Um, one spot uh, would, would make a cancer stage four. One of those spots would make a cancer stage four. And, and there still may be a role for surgery in those, type, in, in those patients, but chemotherapy is gener generally where we will start. We think of it as a systemic disease, a disease throughout the body, and chemotherapy works throughout the body when it's working. Uh, in those stage four cancers, though, there's a lot to there's a lot that we need to know to personalize uh, the therapy for the cancers. We do a lot of tests in the lab and the, uh, to to characterize the cancer. Is it mismatch repair deficient or not? Are there mutations in genes called RAS and RAF or not? And they, they tell us how, how we tweak the chemo or maybe even offer immunotherapy to the patients. And then again, we will sometimes consider surgery uh, to remove distant 
metastases in select cases. And that's why it's so important to have a multidisciplinary team. So a true team involved in, in the care of these patients, even with stage four disease. And all of these cases are reviewed at our tumor board with that whole team I articulated to decide um, how, how best to approach somebody's care. In terms of these um, molecular genetics, the the RAS and the RAF mutations, the mismatch repair mutations, you mentioned those in terms of tweaking chemotherapy for stage four. Are those also used in, in kind of tailoring therapy for people with earlier stage disease? If I could um, only note a couple things about the molecular characteristics of somebody's tumor, it would be the mismatch repair status, which is also sometimes called the microsatellite status or the and the RAS and the RAF status. So in localized disease, the mismatch repair status is very important. The RAS and the RAF status is not so important. So we often only send the latter component for metastatic disease. But for a localized cancer, mismatch repair deficient or microsatellite instability high cancers are, are generally have a more favorable prognosis prognosis. And sometimes we will take that information and say, you don't even need chemotherapy after surgery because you have this, this, this finding of mismatch repair deficiency or microsatellite instability high, and, and are, it's less likely to come back and therefore you don't need chemotherapy. There's a lot of other factors that come into play there. So I don't want to say that all mismatch repair deficient microsatellite instability high tumors don't need chemotherapy after surgery, um, but, but it's generally thought to be a, a good prognosis. And we know from metastatic disease, those tumors are much more sensitive to immunotherapy. Some of the most sensitive cancers there are, in fact, to immunotherapy. And um, it's being investigated whether or not immunotherapy is going to increase cure rates in that population. And we have some of those clinical trials going on. Which brings me to the next question, which is about clinical trials. I mean, colorectal cancer has been around for a long time and is one of, you know, one of the leading cancers affecting both men and women. And so presumably there are some pretty standard regimens in terms of chemotherapy that we offer these patients. So tell us a little bit about um, when you offer people a standard regimen and when you offer them a clinical trial. Absolutely. So clinical trials play a tremendous role in the management of, uh, of a disease like colorectal cancer. And they're really how we move the field forward. And we've doubled and tripled the survival rate, um, for, especially for metastatic disease over the last few decades. And that's because clinical trials brought new, new agents and drugs and treatment approaches into the fold. And the treatments we have for metastatic disease, we use some of them, again, after surgery. We use drugs. We, we like our acronyms and our abbreviations. So we, we have a, a regimen we call FOLFOX, which is 5-FU, an oxaliplatin, and a vitamin called leucovorin. But it's really two chemo drugs together. We have another chemo regimen called Fulfury. It's that same 5-FU and arinotecan, so two chemo drugs together. Um, it's just a second one instead of the oxaliplatin. And th that's really the backbone of our care. And we can usually control a metastatic colorectal cancer patient with for years with those two regimens together. But at some point, we run out of mileage with those agents. Resistance develops. Tolerability becomes an issue, something um, that necessitates us moving on from those regimens. And we really don't have great agents after that. So I'm often thinking about clinical trials, um, novel clinical trials after those regimens have, have, have stopped working. But I am often thinking about clinical trials even initially where I will add on 
uh, well, not just me, but wh- where agents will be added on or a pr- different treatment approaches will be added on to those chemo drugs. So they are good chemo backbones. We can do better and we are investigating numerous ways adding on immunotherapy, new targeted drugs, new chemo drugs to those regimens. But we're also investigating new, completely new regimens in the third and in, in the fourth line setting. There are third and fourth line drugs available for patients with colorectal cancer. There's a drug called TAS-102. There's a drug called regorafenib. But the effect of those is, is marginal compared to those full foxes and full furies that I mentioned. And so... so- it sounds like clinical trials have two kind of roles. One is um, after our standard tried and true regimens have failed, and and we're looking for the next best thing that might um, that might help and and move us further afield. And the other is in investigating novel therapies um, straight out of the box. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's uh, definitely right. Um, I think you know these these treatments like full fox and full fury have doubled and tripled the survival rate, but we can still do better than that. But they are the standard of care, and since they are so effective, we we add on to those, and we should add on to those, so that patients get the best treatment available to them. When when we've moved on to our third and our fourth fourth line treatments, the TAS one hundred two and the regorafenib which are chemo pills, um, they're, they're not a great alternative. They're not tolerated super well. And, and their, their time with disease control is not, not as good as we would like. So, um, that is a time that we try a more novel approach generally. So, Tell us a little bit more about your research and some of the things that you're particularly excited about in this field. Absolutely. I guess maybe I'll, I'll start by talking about some of the um, things I'm excited about more broadly. And, and um, one, one area that I think has garnered a lot of attention lately for colorectal cancer is something called circulating tumor DNA, where we can detect minimal amounts of uh, circulating tumor DNA in the bloodstream after a surgery. So for example, a, a patient with uh, stage two colorectal cancer that happens to have um, a, te- a blood test done that um, circulating tumor DNA is, is detected. Now, we know that that patient is probably going to relapse if we don't do anything um, uh, besides observation. So we can use a tool like that to decide who's high risk, who's low risk. And that gives us opportunities to intensify and de-intensify treatment. So trying to uh, increase cure rates for those that are high risk, but also knowing when somebody's going to do well and maybe uh, avoid circumstances of overtreatment. So that's that's um, something as a field. I think we're learning how to use these tests. We know they correlate really well with whether or not the cancer is going to come back when you're only doing observation, but we don't know how well it predicts for benefit from chemotherapy yet. And those st- studies are ongoing. We have some of those studies ongoing here at Yale. I I also have. Um, um, a, a busy clinical practice and research program um, studying uh, more novel therapies in in colorectal cancer. So we have different types of trials we develop here at Yale. We have trials where um, we call them industry sponsored trials, where we work have worked with a a company who has developed a drug and opened their trial that they came up with generally the idea, maybe with some input than us, uh, from us. Um, but we've had, you know, a, l- a little bit less involvement perhaps in, in a, a trial like that and, and designing the trial and, and analyzing the data. Um, so those, those are, are 
industry-sponsored trials that we have here. Um, but but we also have a robust program of investigator-initiated trials here. And, and I have a couple open and, and one specifically in that third-line colorectal cancer group. For example, uh, this is a, a trial where we've come up with the idea and maybe we've written a grant or we've partnered with a, a drug company to, to tell them um, in a way that we think that we could look at a new subtype of cancer or a new way to look at their, their, their drug, um, to, to, to leverage that and, um, uh, for patients with that disease. So I have a, an investigator initiated trial for colorectal cancer that has received two different types of chemotherapy where we look for a marker called MGMT. So we, we basically meet a patient. We, we then, uh, if they're a potentially candidate, we'll test their tumor for this marker. And if they have this marker, which ends up being about 40% of patients, if they have this marker, we will then offer them enrollment in a clinical trial of combining temozolomide and alaparib for um, MGMT, promoter hypermethylated colorectal cancer. So we basically identify this subgroup of colorectal cancer, and then we have this trial that we came up with here at Yale. And we're, we're also studying the outcome of, of patients with this to, to make sure that we're actually helping people, but also studying the science to, to develop the next generation of trials, which in my opinion, will be leveraging the immune system um, to, to make it work for the majority of patients col uh, with colorectal cancer, as my colleagues in lung cancer and melanoma have been doing for the last decade. Dr. Michael Caccini is an assistant professor of medicine in medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.